darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome to another episode of the Superhero Movie Club. I'm your, com- <laughs> I'm your comic book culture host, Michael Maurer, joined in the studio today by the movie maestro, uh, James Skyler-Hautzma, and the, uh, the scientific scholar, uh, Ben Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> movie review podcasts are a dime a dozen. Here at SHMC, we like to call ourselves a movie discussion podcast. We cover everything else about the movies you maybe didn't notice, including budgets, music, source books, and hell, even the science. This week, I hope you're ready for Watchmen. Yay. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want listeners to know that today, in preparation for this episode, I sat through the director's cut. I'm so sorry. And that was three and a half hours long. Three hours and 35 minutes. Yes, it was. I, I know some people you guys can see. <laughs> they meet every Tuesday night. It's just a Watchmen support club. Like, oh. Is there really such a thing? Because I feel like that's kind of a niche. A niche? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that would have ended in like 2011 after everyone had already seen this movie and given their first opinions on it. Oh. Segway master. Yeah, I'm so good. So, I'm like Job. All right, I'll go first then. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. <clears throat> this movie was such a valiant attempt at the Watchmen graphic novel. Because, while I will talk more about it later, the Watchmen graphic novel is held up on a high pedestal, like, miles, miles and miles above. It is regarded by some as, like, the greatest comic book ever made. The greatest novel ever made, some say. Yeah. It was a comic book first, but now it's gathered, and now it's just this wonderful tale. Uh, so this movie wanted to turn that into a movie, and while some things it got right, uh, I'd say I really liked the look, the the, the glossiness of it. Um, some things I disliked were it was paced really oddly, and because it was you know the pa- trying to copy as much as the book as possible, and so it either was cramped or too long in some points, so it was just a mishmash. But go ahead, Skylar. Yeah, Watchmen really is kind of a example of the perils of trying to pay homage to something a little too much. Like you said, a lot of it it got right. It looks awesome. Uh, a lot of it it messed up, as in the pacing of the whole thing. But more than anything, I think the thing that weighs it down is the fact that it loses a lot of its substance. It's very superficial, I feel like. Like, this was Zack Snyder pre-Man of Steel, where it just felt like there was a little bit of seediness peeking through, a little pervy, a little juvenile, but good in the parts that ultimately work. I I agree with with Michael as well about the the pacing of this movie was just off. I think Zack Snyder really tried to capture the scope of the original graphic novel, and you just can't do that 
in any reasonably length film. I, if, if they broke it in two films, three films, it might have worked, but I don't think anyone would have seen it then. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I watched this in theaters, and I remember being like, it was all right, but too long. And then about a week ago before, like when I found out we were doing Watchmen for this podcast, I was like, oh yeah, like I remember that movie being good. But then I watched the director's cut and I was like, whew, I got about an hour and 45 minutes in and said, okay, we're less than halfway done. I, I can't finish it. <laughs> and I'd, I have things to do today. I'd, I would rather reread the novel for the fifth time, you know, yeah. instead of watch it for the second. He tried. He tried so he hard. He tried so hard. He, and came so far. But, but in, in the, the end, end, it doesn't even matter. He had to fall to lose it all. But does it matter, money-wise? Oh, uh, good question. Kind of, sort of, not really. Explain. Okay, Give well. Give us numbers. Numbers. Number time. Watchmen made for a production budget of $160 million. So. That's high. It's just above the average. Yeah. Yeah. Watchmen domestic gross, $107.5. Eh. Middling. Well, it wasn't. Your investment wasn't that great. No. It was even worse in the foreign markets where it just made $77.7 million for a total of 185.2. So made its budget back. It, it made dollars. It made dollars. Cash money, yes. Much money. But, but here's what happened. The people who wanted to see Watchmen really bad went out and saw Watchmen opening weekend. $55 million opening weekend. Then after that, no one saw it. <laughs> You know, I have a funny story about this. And when Watchmen came out, I was not 18 years old yet. Or 17, right? 17. It was an R-rated film. I believe is this rated R? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess it is. Some quite <laughs> gruesome moments. And I was 16 at the time. And I was like, I got to see this movie. I love the book. I need to go see this. So I formulated with a friend to sneak into a theater, right? So what we did was actually we bought tickets for the a showing of Taken oh, at sure. nearly the same time, sat through the previews of Taken, and then walked out of that theater and then across the hall into the Watchmen Theater to sit through Watchmen. Did not get caught, but I mean, my money didn't go to Watchmen. It went to Taken. Uh, well, that's okay. It's the first Taken. I'm, I'm sure they definitely lost a lot of money on 16, 15 and 16-year-olds who snuck in from seeing Taken. Okay. I bet that was a huge chunk of Taken's box office take. Okay. Just so, tens of millions of dollars there. Was this the most recent R-rated film based on a superhero or comic book? Ooh, good question. Since when? I mean, you, I bet you well, can count all of them on one finger. Because, um, I mean, R-rated films based on comic books do not have a solid track record. No, they don't. I mean, even before, I want to say, like, last summer, just R-rated movies in general weren't that big was, a box office draw. Unless they were horror films. Right. That was it. Mm-hmm. And possibly comedies. True. I mean, now you have movies like Gone Girl and Mad Max that are raking them in. But before, just this past few years, R-rating was risky. Okay, so let's talk about story deviation in the comic book. So originally Watchmen was a 12-issue comic book. came out once a month for an entire year and through 1986 to 1987 by the great and wild Alan Moore and art by Dan Gib- uh, by Dave Gibbons. When this book was released, as it came out, 
and you know when it was recollected and such, many critics regarded this as this is not fantasy, this is literature. This book is just soaked with symbolic gooeyness. Like I don't, I can't explain. I, there are books that describe the social and philosophical aspects of Watchmen, like books, research books that just go into it. Academic published papers mm-hmm. yeah. for days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when when they were beginning to make this product, they were going to use characters from Charlton Comics that were recently bought up to use because they um, bought up licenses for characters like Peacemaker and The Shield. But because they got wind that Alan Moore was going to kill so many of those characters, they were they said, no, 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 please no, because we want to use those characters in the future. I, I mean, we're giving you first run at them, but don't kill them right away. You know what? Why don't you just make your own characters, please? And he didn't like the idea at first, but it grew on him. So now we have a whole new slab of Rorschach night owls and silk specters. Um, to kill. Yes, to be murdered <laughs> brutally. It's worth noting that the movie took the story of the book and pretty much put it in film shot for shot. Mm-hmm. With the exception of the ending. I'm getting to that. Okay. <laughs> except and, for that one thing. Except for that one thing. <laughs> but what you have is, you know, a really scrunched down version of Watchmen in the film. You can eat this is a prime example of a book or a movie that stays closest to its source material. But at the same time, you can totally see why movies don't do that all the time. And probably shouldn't. Yes. Most of the time. Things suffer. Uh, The script ends up coming a little hokey because in a comic book, things come off more naturally in conversation than they do on a film script. A lot of the the pacing, you don't have panels. You don't have these big breaks of like chapter breaks. You You have them in a grander scale in film. You don't have them in shorter scales. And I'm, you don't get comic book panels to work with to really expand the art. I'm suddenly imagining if Scott Pil- if this movie were like written and shot the way Scott Pilgrim was. Not, not like stylistically, but like in terms of you don't need every single panel from you know, every book to be shot. You know, you can get the whole story. I, I don't know, I'm just trying to imagine if they if if they could do a better job of this and they probably could because they did with uh, Scott Pilgrim, which admittedly is less complex. That's yeah, that's the big difference. But, Scott's fluffy and fun and filled with jokes you can insert here and there. Not a whole lot of symbolic attitude, and its symbolic attitude is really you have to look for it. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Watchmen just makes me cry in the shower, <laughs> just thinking about it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so the story of the book takes the divergence takes place in 1938. It's supposed to be a real world setting, but as of 1938, the world becomes introduced with superheroes instead of, you know, what our natural world went through. And by superheroes, they just mean people in costumes. Nobody actually has any superhuman abilities. And they help win World War II, and there's this pristine, this, uh, this prestige of winning World War II. And then during the Vietnam era, the actual superhero shows up, Dr. Manhattan, and he wins Vietnam in a week. Instead of uh, getting Vietnam protests about how Americans are dying over there and we're just warmongering, we get who watches the people who are powerful enough to take over a nation in a week. Those protests instead. And you also get the new superheroes, the Night Owl 2s, the Silk Spectre 2s, 
completely hated by the public. And, you know, the whole Vietnam veteran symbolic overlap there because the World War II vets are so high up on everyone's respect while the Vietnam vets were treated like junk in American history. And there's there's so many more. I could literally, I could go for hours on all the things that Watchmen does, but I'm just going to skip around. Not even Watchmen does. Like the like the panels of the comic book don't go into everything. There's like in between each chapter, there's tons of supporting background material. Oh, yeah. They use that, little documents, yeah. fictional documents, like newspaper reports, mm-hmm. case files, and they just add to this world mm-hmm. and what this world would be like if we, beat, if we won Vietnam in a week with a god. Because Alan Morris quoted as saying, like, when I wrote this, I wanted it to have the intention of people needing to read it five times, and every time they would find something different. And I'm like, well, succeeded. People reread this like every year, like as like a, a ritual. Oh, one of the the big things that was taken out of the film that was in the book for a lot was the tales of the Black Friday. And while that was later reintroduced into the director's cut, that was the uh, interludes of all those, the pirate's tale of, what was it symbolic for? Uh, the Black Freighter represented the nuclear... Annihilation. Yeah, it was the threat of nuclear annihilation. And the, the, the tale was about the awful things we have to do to prevent it. And is it worth the cost? And it wasn't just thrown in there either. I think there was a kid we catch up every, with mm-hmm. now and then. He was reading it like and, on the street or something. Yeah, and the, the text of the Black Freighter comic book that the kid's reading in the comic book you're reading, parallels the dialogue of the newspaper vendor, which so, made it yeah. really cool. <laughs> in the, yeah. And in, in, the, in the director's cut, it's just thrown in, and you're like, well. It's animated sequences, too. So it kind of, it doesn't it doesn't. It's the whole Ghost well. Rider thing. Yeah, it doesn't fit well. No. Animated sequences in a live-action film. I mean, it takes a lot of finesse to get that stuff to acceptable watchableness. And the biggest theme of the book was anti-Reaganism, because this book came out in a time when Reagan was president, and you had Reaganomics, and a lot of liberals were very much against that practice. It was, I think, one of the most conservative times in America. Essentially. Except for when Obama got elected. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, stop. And so, it's because the original intent was to put this book in the setting of modern times, 1986, and use Reagan instead of Dick Cheney or instead of Richard Nixon as like a partial antagonist. But Alan Moore said, like, I don't want to defame a modern celebrity because that's what he is hmm. or was at the time. He was very uh, he was loved by a lot of Americans. Meanwhile, Frank Miller in Dark Knight Rises is like, screw it. No, it's Reagan. It's Reagan, which came out in the same year. Did it? Yes. Arguably, the peak of comic books is 1986. Excuse me. Dark Knight Returns. Yes. Dark Knight Returns. Also, Mouse came out that year. Art Spiegelman's. Oh, damn. Yep. Wow. Art Spiegelman's graphic novel about uh, his father's time in the Holocaust. And then four years later, we had the 90s. (laughs) Which was... Oh. oh, I have... An X-Man comic from the 90s, and it's just awful. It is. Pretty, it was, <laughs> it's so it was bad. It was a rough time. Um, so the big thing in the comic book story is the ending. It's a big thing. It's a big <laughs> thing. In the book, they spent all this time creating this subplot of Adrian's plan. And in the movie, we see that in, in fruition with 
him creating this constant, like this nuclear device that explodes in several different areas, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. making Dr. Manhattan look like this omnipotent overlord that all the worlds now have to unite in peace if they want to stand a chance at defeating him. Yeah, at answering to God. Yeah. <laughs> because it, finally they realize, like, oh no, this guy could destroy us at any moment. We need to stop having wars. Because they're so counter, they're so counterintuitive, they don't have a point anymore. In the book, similar concept. Like the end goal was the same. Not Doctor Manhattan. Different cosmic entity. <laughs> yeah. Different cosmic horror unleashed on New York. Uh, just, much more graphic. Just stupid. <laughs> well, it's a giant it, squid vagina. It, it was a, <laughs> it was a giant squid monster that was theorized to have come through a portal, and it because it. Its landing caused an explosion that killed itself and New York City. Of course, this was all orchestrated by Adrian. It's not actually a giant squid monster. It's a it's fake. It was created artificially. Genetically engineered, just like his weird cat mm-hmm. horse thing. <laughs> <laughs> what this did is now the government's like, oh, there's aliens out there that could attack us at any moment. Wars don't matter. We need to prepare for this threat. Because what if they come through, like, tomorrow? We need to get working on that. Didn't, am, am I describing that right? Didn't the big squid monster have, like, some kind of psychic thing where yes. when it hit, it, like, send out some kind of shockwave of yep. psychic death? Some weird psychic energy thing. Yeah. Oh, they made that up? Did yeah. Adrian create that? Adrian, yeah, he yeah. created... He A was psychic the, blast? Yeah. Okay. I don't remember that, but then again, it's been a while since I reread. Well, I reread the book last week because <laughs> I was so excited for this episode. Bravo. Yeah. Thank you <laughs> for for covering my gaps. I am really glad, actually, that they used the ending that they did in the movie. Yeah. Because that- if they just dropped a squid on New York, it would have made no goddamn sense. <laughs> I would Doctor never Ma- have like, stopped laughing. Ad- Adrian blowing up a bunch of cities to make it look like Dr. Manhattan did everything makes sense within the context of the movie. Oh, yes, very much so, because the last moment you see before he leaves is him freaking out on television. The only time he's ever freaked out in the history of him, ever. And the only time he's had emotion. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like, oh, no, this is a new age. Yeah. Okay, me now, um, I appreciate it. Me as a 16-year-old wanted giant squid monster really, really bad. I was very upset, super upset, because I wanted the graphic gore to come that – Sometimes this movie had moments of just unnecessary gore, I'd say. Gore that didn't fit a point. It was just to be gory. Oh, when the one lady's fingers get shot off? Yeah, that like, that scene too. I was like, that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thug in the alley getting his elbow broken and just shattering out. fracture. See, in that, in that scenario, I'm like, it's to show that these two vigilantes don't mess around. Oh, yeah. But when there was just the bullets were flying in that one scene that um, Adrian was getting assassination attempt, air quotes. That's right. And it was just bloody gruesome. And it was kind of like, I don't – bullets are dangerous? Is that the message you want to get across with this bloody scene? And, you know, the saw in the uh, the prison scene. Uh, yeah. That was but, pretty bloody. Yeah. Okay. And it was also to get another purpose across, I well, think, that that little dude doesn't mess around. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, these people just don't mess around. Yes. People don't mess around. Oh, I forgot about that scene. Mm-hmm. Hacking the child molester in the brain. That was to prove a gruesome <laughs> that was, moment that was for a critical. That was, that was the, a critical moment in Rorschach's character. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Now Rorschach doesn't mess around. But... <laughs> 
<laughs> and it also informs us about his his philosophy and psychology. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of shots of gore that were like just not necessary. But that's enough about the graphic novel. Again, just if you are interested, first of all, read Watchmen. It's a must read mm-hmm. for almost everybody. In the world, except little children. Well, everyone in America. Do the three of us agree, if given the choice, just read the novel, skip the movie? Yes? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. I think if you want more, of course, watch the movie. If you if, – because Watchmen is a one-time thing. There's the before Watchmen series that came out recently. Hmm. So I guess there, it's not really a one-time thing. There was more material. But the movie is just more material to watch. It's not so bad that – you shouldn't you should avoid it but if you it's, love watchmen it's a good thing to just enjoy for a bit yeah you should watch you should watch the movie once but i rereading the watchmen i just want to go straight back to it i never want to go back to watching the movie again mhm that's very fair so but while we're still enjoying the first time watching the movie all you listeners out there Let's talk about some of the music that was used in it. Take it away, Skylar. All right. Well, Watchmen's music is a bit of a different beast this time because, well, yes, it did have a musical score like eh, just about every movie does. Uh, This is an example on our podcast where soundtrack items are used probably in a lot more prominence than the actual score. Describe the difference real quick. Score. uh, Orchestral doesn't need to be, but generally orchestral music written for the film soundtrack pre-written songs that have been implemented into the story okay either diegetically or non-diegetically you just see when i ask you I, to explain something don't use is this, jargon is, the, is this what it's like to talk to me <laughs> <laughs> on some occasions but <laughs> basically <laughs> i'm gonna do it now as part of the story like within the story or just you know, outside the story. Score, okay? Score. It's probably not lyrical. It was made for the film. Soundtrack, like maybe pop songs, maybe old classical songs that they bought the rights to to put in the film. Right. Yeah. All right. That. So let's start with the former of that. Uh, The score. The score, (laughs) written by uh, Tyler Bates, who we've talked about once before for his work on Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh wow! I forgot about that. We didn't talk about music in Guardians. Oh yeah, that was what, we talked that was about our shaking times. <laughs> we talked about a movie he did, not necessarily what he did. <laughs> also, he did Guardians of the Galaxy. There, okay. we talked about it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Rewriting the timeline, and the clip I've somewhat haphazardly pulled out is "Prison Fight" from. I don't know. They're just like on a picnic or something. No, it's the scene where everyone's trapped in there with Rorschach. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Yeah. true to his work before with uh, Zack Snyder on 300. A lot of guitars, a lot of like breakdowns and stuff like that. It's a lot of intense techno sounds. A lot of techno sounds. Not a very pronounced melody. 
but yeah, I think it did its job. I, it I wasn't. So. It wasn't. There, there were flamboyant. But there were a couple <laughs> moments in this movie when I was like, "That's a decent score," <laughs> you know, which is not something I usually notice in a film. Huh. Moving on to the soundtrack portion of things, what a lot of people don't know is that one of the most musically uh, prominent moments of the movie is actually a soundtrack, and that is the backing music to Dr. Manhattan scene, where he kind of explains... His monologue. His, yes. His, like, five-minute-long monologue that's not that well-paced and isn't as good as it is in the comic book. <laughs> <laughs> but this was the best musical moment. Of the movie, yes. Yes. Yeah. But it was not actually written for the movie. It's Philip Glass's Pruitt, Ego, and Prophecies. I'm pretty sure i just butchered at least the first two words of that that sounds right that's it's pretty close yeah. yeah okay good good and was used in trailers beforehand made it into the movie pretty much became one of the more memorable parts of the film let's take a listen Like Dr. Manhattan, I feel like I have just gone to space. It's very ethereal. Yeah, this uh, this this piece was actually composed uh, by Philip Glass for the for the film Koyaanisqatsi, uh, which is a weird art film that <laughs> honestly everyone should watch. It's much better than Watchmen. <laughs> I don't wouldn't say that it's, far. I just isn't it just no? It's just this song, right? And the only words spoken in it are Koyaanisqatsi. Uh, that's the opening track Koyaanisqatsi it's uh, the Hopi language it means life out of balance in uh, Pruitt Ego and Prophecies the text is actually three three Hopi prophecies um, and I, I looked them up and they are as follows if we dig precious things from the land we will invite disaster that's the first one second one near the day of purification there will be cobwebs spun back and forth in the sky and three a container of ashes will one day be thrown from the sky, which will burn the land and boil the oceans. All right, no cheery. So, yeah, ties in with the nuclear. It does nuclear it really threat does. thing in a in a really. It's not a subtle way because uh, probably about eighty percent of the people who saw this movie don't speak Hopi. So. <laughs> you think? And then finally. Last one I have picked out is just a little personal favorite. It's Nat King Cole's Unforgettable, which is featured in the very beginning of the movie when uh, the comedian, spoiler alert, oh, please. gets killed. We're way past that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. 
unforgettable That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love That clings to me How the Father you Does things to me Never before Has someone been more Unforgettable In every way now imagine that song but with a lot of <laughs> crash, cling, there, ah, there were a few songs that just didn't, f- like, that were used in the soundtrack that just didn't fit the tone of whatever scene they were in. They were pushing the 70s soundtrack. They really were. The Vietnam stuff. And with these two and also uh, ones we use in the beginning and end of this podcast, I'm just realizing now how chill everything is. Like, there's not... A whole lot of up-tempo stuff. Yeah, they don't, like, use any Stones. Usually when you think Vietnam, you think Rolling Stones soundtrack, right? You, you think that, that one... Um, Satisfaction? Gimme Shelter. Gimme Shelter. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah. I think Fortunate Son by... Credence. Credence. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think when I think of Vietnam. Yeah. But Only up-tempo song they used I can think of right now is uh, Boogeyman during the riot scene. Well, then... Well, that is the music of Watchmen. Uh, most of these songs you maybe already heard. You probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they took a kind of a poppy soundtrack. They did indeed. What is it with Tyler Bates writing scores for <laughs> like films that have like huge seventies? No kidding. Soundtracks. <laughs> it was like this. Yeah, it was the same I mean, thing. And honestly, I was thinking that when I was listening to Watchmen. Uh, well, watching the movie, I was like, man, this uses much modern music as uh, Guardians of the Galaxy did. And lo and behold, <laughs> same person. <laughs> Gotta love those moments. That's yeah. why we're here to tell you about those moments. Yeah. From now, you figure them out. Like, for, like on a scale of one to Uga Chaka, how cool is that? <laughs> <laughs> From now on, Tyler Bates shall be known as Mister Padding. I don't get it. Kind of let's do science. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do science. Hey Ben. Hey, how you doing over Good, there? How are you? <laughs> why do you laugh at me? I don't. I don't okay. know. I just, I just find it funny how you answer that all the time. All right, so let's talk. Science. Let's talk science. We're going to just not talk about Dr. Manhattan because he's a god and can do whatever he wants. Yes. Like, that, like, yeah. Can we talk about... We can talk about... The things that surround him? That's We can talk about intrinsic fields. Yeah, that theoretically make him what he is. Okay, yeah. So, an intrinsic field. Right. What they used it in the film, it was that he got trapped in an intrinsic field generator. Uh, His intrinsic field was stripped away. Oh, okay, so from the top, explain. So, I don't know what they're, well, I don't know what they're on about. Okay. Um, in, in the book, basically, this physicist is, like, talking about what they're doing. He's like, oh, yeah, we're working with, you know, particles, intrinsic fields, which is a force that holds them together. It's even stronger than gravity. And as someone who has a degree in physics, I just facepalmed at that sentence. And I'm like, come on, this, like, PhD government researcher doesn't know. Well, this was the 1980s. Maybe it was just, like, a mm. hokey topic at the time. No, it no? wasn't. Okay. Uh, there's four fundamental forces that describe how all particles interact with all the others. And they are gravity, 
electromagnetism, nuclear weak force, and the nuclear strong force. And gravity is the weakest. Where does intrinsic field fit? It it's not it's not a thing. It's a thing they made up for the movie so they could they could give Doctor Manhattan powers. But okay. like his statement, he's like, it's even stronger than gravity, and I'm like, everything's stronger than gravity. You can't get weaker than gravity. Gravity is the least well understood force of nature because it is so weak. We have trouble designing experience experiments that can measure it. Okay, Alan Moore is quite the political scientist, but. Maybe not the greatest regular scientist. He's, you know, <laughs> it's sci-fi. You know, just pick a term but and then anyway, roll with it. The the idea is Doctor Manhattan can manipulate whatever the intrinsic field is. I'm just going to say he can manipulate the fundamental forces of nature, molecules around you, on an atomic level, subatomic level, because the nuclear strong force works at a subatomic level. So yeah, he can he can manipulate the forces of nature and recombine matter and all the things we see him do. Can we can we talk about the other jargon hot word that was yeah. used? Which and one? every time he's like he's thinking about oh how tachyons, he, how he's going thinking back and forth in time, okay. and they're like, oh, I can't see right now. There's tachyon interference. Yeah, what's a tachyon? Tachyons. There is no physical experimental evidence that tachyons exist. What they would be is they would be a particle with imaginary mass. So, okay, now we have to talk about imaginary numbers. So, like, <laughs> when you take a square root of something, if it's a positive number, you can do that. So, 9 square root of 9 is 3. Square root of 9 is 3. Square root of 2 is 1.4-ish. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, you can do that for any positive number. You can do it for 0. It's because 0 times 0 equals 0. But if you try to do that with a negative number... What two numbers can you multiply to get a negative number? Two negative numbers? No, because negative times negative positive. is positive. A negative and a positive? No, because you're not multiplying the same number. See? So you got to have an imaginary So you number. have to create a new number whose square is negative one, and then you can create complex numbers. And Bring this back to tachyons. Tach- so... In Einstein's laws of relativity, um, time dilation, the equation that describes that, there's a square root of mass. In one of the equations of relativity, there's a square root of something squared. <laughs> anyway, and the point is, if you can get that to be negative, then it's moving backwards in time. So tachyons are and it, it behaves like a measurement of something moving backward in time. Right, yeah. I don't know how you would detect it. I'm sure there are physicists much cleverer than me working on this. Because if you could find something, if you could find a particle that's moving backwards in time, whatever that would mean, then you would have evidence of a tachyon and therefore a particle with imaginary mass, which would be weird because as far we know, mass has to be real. Then it becomes antimatter? Actually, this is something I just remembered now. But one interpretation of antimatter is that instead of it being regular matter with an opposite electrical charge moving forward in time, it's it's matter with the same charge but moving backwards in time. And your equations, like the calculations work out the same way, whether you have it be a particle moving forward in time or an antiparticle moving backwards in time. Superhero Movie Club, where we try our best to ground the science. I, it's, it's been years... No, year, singular, since I've I've taken any kind of physics class, so I'm really trying here. I'm out but to see you guys. I was Throw me the lifeboat. <laughs> if, if, if if any of my professors are listening, I, I am really sorry that for everything. <laughs> I I'm well aware that I was not the best student 
Just be maybe aware. not even a good one, but I try. <laughs> I really do. Just be aware. Comic books love to use the word tachyons. Yeah. A lot because it's just straight up like they exist. They are scientific term that delves in time travel. So let's use them because they're great for time travel and it hasn't been proven that they don't exist. So people like me can't technically get mad at you (laughs) for talking about them. Like you're not you're not dumb. You're just doing you're just being creative. Yeah, it's it's yeah, I'll allow it. (laughs) So tachyons. Yes. A okay. thing that are theorized. Then what I else think that's got? enough science. Uh, catching a bullet. Oh, you want to? Oh, you want to? I catch do want to talk because Adrian catches. A Adrian bullet. catches a. He jokes about it and then he does it. Um, <laughs> and it's not going to be possible because bullets are moving fast and your your and body tissues are pretty soft and it would just rip right through you. And if you like clamp down on it, like like just straight up and down, you'd have to stop it spinning, and that's really what makes it difficult. Oh, it would just spin right through your hand. It would it would keep spin. Drill right through yeah, it. Yeah, it would yeah. So no. He you can't catch a bullet. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Adrian. Well but, there was that magic trick where was it like Penn and Teller caught a bullet with his teeth? Yeah. N- did not actually happen. <laughs> it's a magic trick. <laughs> it's a magic trick. They which wh- who's the guy that doesn't talk in that duo? Pen- Teller. 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 Teller had the bullet in the in his mouth the whole time and they arranged it somehow so that the person in the audience drew the same design on both bullets beforehand. Yeah. And then Penn did not shoot a bullet into his mouth. The laser was pointed off slightly, and it went into the back of the stage. Oh, ben. which is still pretty dangerous. You're, but. you're so, so good at spoiling magic. So what we're saying here is that Adrian had the bullet in his hand, and, <laughs> and just faked him Silk out. Spectre and was he arranged it with blanks. he arranged it with Silk Spectre ahead of time, <laughs> right? So that the fake out, yeah. God. It had the same little smiley face with the drop of blood on it, does, drawn on the side. Your dreams are dead, audience. And then he and then he pulled it out, and he's like, "Is this your card?" <laughs> and she's like, "It's not a card." And he punches her. Yeah. So because he's got places to be. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's get on to uh, fun facts. Anybody got anything dying that they they read about? Fun fact: Alan Moore did not want his name attached to this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's the big one. <laughs> okay, now. Did Alan Moore's whole grudge against Hollywood start with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or did it go back even further than that? Uh, the first League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was created by him. It wasn't the he's worked on properties like Swamp Thing and Superman, and there have been films about those characters. But unless the characters were created by him, he typically doesn't have a beef. Right. So as far as we know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen created by him, and that's when. This whole shindig went down. The media fiasco of every time someone wants to adapt an Alan Moore product into a film or any other form of media than other than its original source, he doesn't even want to be credited because it becomes a completely different thing. Based on a graphic novel co-created and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. Is what the, <laughs> that's what the opening credit says. They really are like... They're really, like, stretching, you <laughs> the, know. The verbiage titles. Yeah. So I don't know. What's d- does Has he voiced reason? Not beyond what you said, just that Hollywood pretty much just bastardizes everything he does. Okay. Well, in his opinion. Right. And others sometimes, too. The thing, the, the thing about Alan Moore is he's considered one of the greats of comic book writers delivering to us that beautiful run of Saga of the Swamp Thing and, of course, The Watchmen. 
V for uh, Vendetta, v Killing for, Joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All these great, like, these things are held very high on the literary list of comic books. And nobody tends to talk about his crappy runs. <laughs> <laughs> I've read some poor Alan Moore comics, and I'm just like, oof. Are they real bad? Uh, they're not. They're just they're just like what an average person was doing. But I mean, like I've read, I believe uh, Promethea came out sometime in the '90s. I've read that, and that was when you see Alan Moore, you expect literary gold. Promethea was not literary gold at all. So it was like, uh, of course, he's human. He's still just a human being. He's not Shakespeare. <laughs> Even Shakespeare wrote like some like just mediocre plays because he had to make money. Mm-hmm. Right. Beethoven had like a whole like 15 year period where he just wrote mediocre operas and a mandolin concerto. So yeah, we talk about we put them their best works on a pedestal, but there are downtimes. Did most of his crappy stuff come in the 90s? Uh, Cuz that would make sense. Uh I want to say 90s and you know, there were periods during his high runs too cuz Frank Miller of course did The Dark Knight Returns. And then right after that, he well soon after that, he did The Dark Knight Strikes Again, which was a sequel to Dark Knight Returns. And unlike Dark Knight Returns, it is regarded as one of the worst comic books of all time. Yeah. And I've read it, and it is so it's so poorly drawn. The splash pages are... Uh, I could go for days on that. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> but that's all I have for fun facts. Any because of this movie's? You know, honestly, like I had, a, <laughs> I had all these stories about Watchmen. And, you know, because of this movie, I, I, I snuck into a theater for the first and only time in my life. And things like that. But I, I told them all earlier in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. all the like, how I sat, and you know, how you and I sat through the, like the, the director's cut, and that's just—it's it's a slog. It takes your it takes a, your day away. Yeah, because I got home from work. I started watching the director's cut. I was about halfway done, and I looked at the clock, and I said, "Oh man, I should shower before I go to the podcast." <laughs> <laughs> because of this movie, surprisingly, none of our butts have poor circulation from just sitting through this behemoth. Yeah, it's a giant film. I mean, I didn't. I ended up not showering anyway because I'm fat and lazy. But <laughs> all right. But I think that's all we get. I mean, we didn't say any because of this movie, but we love just talking about Watchmen. It's because of this fun. movie, you should read the book. Yeah. Did you have your porn parody? Oh gosh, yeah. It's identical to the movie up until <laughs> the scene where Night Owl and Silk Spectre have sex inside the weird owl ship thingy. Mm-hmm. And but then it's as long as the director's cut and like every other character like shows up. It's a good old time. <laughs> you you made this? Who crotches the Watchman? <laughs> I did not make this. No, like imaginarily in your head. Oh. <laughs> Because when you describe things, I'm like, because that time you were right when you with the X Men um, Days of Future ass. Oh, and I was like, oh, you're not just making this stuff up. <laughs> oh no, that this one's I hope made up. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, of all the movies we've done so far, Watchmen writes its own porn parody with its graphic nature. This yeah, is the most sexual it's, one one we've talked on. Yeah. There's a lot of blue dick. A lot of blue dick going on. Oh, yeah. Oddly enough, that stuff was kind of limited in the director's cut. <laughs> they actually there showed a, restraint. There was the less cut. blue dick in the director's cut. I was like, I was noticing that because I was like, I was scarred as a sixteen-year-old when there. Was I think there's many... just as much that's just so, like an hour longer, and so it feels like less on average. <laughs> I'm sure, like if you if you timed it out, the amount of time with blue dong is on screen. <laughs> it's exactly the same. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> it just feels like. 
you know, 30% more. It's been a while since I've seen this blue dong. 30% more blue dong if you watch the theatrical <laughs> release. There you go. Why did they not put that on put the, the box? Yeah, put that on back on the... On the, the one, one disc set? On the <laughs> full screen, like, three to four standard definition DVD. <laughs> Why you should get this one instead oh, of the Blu-ray. 30% more blue dong. <laughs> yep. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up today. Superhero Movie Club is recorded and produced in the studios of KMSU in Mankato, Minnesota. If you want to tweet any questions to us or just continue the discussion on this show's topic, follow us on Twitter at SuperheroMC. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes so you catch every episode as it comes out on the weekend. And like us on Facebook to keep up to date with us throughout each week. All right, so that'll do it today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Gallagher-Otzma. And I'm Ben Anderson. Have a super week. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the time